Chapter 19 of Varney the Vampire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Tobias. Varney the Vampire, Volume 1, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter 19 Flora in Her Chamber her fears, the manuscript, an adventure. Henry found Flora in her chamber. She was in deep thought when he tapped at the door of the room, and such was the state of nervous excitement in which she was that even the demand for admission made by him to the room was sufficient to produce from her a sudden cry of alarm. "'Who—who who is there?' she then said, in accents full of terror. "'Tis I, dear Flora,' said Henry." She opened the door in an instant, and, with a feeling of grateful relief, exclaimed, "'Oh, Henry, is it only you?' "'Who did you suppose it was, Flora?' She shuddered. "'I, I do not know, but I am so foolish now, and so weak-spirited, that the slightest noise is enough to alarm me.' "'You must, dear Flora, fight up, as I had hoped you were doing, against this nervousness.' "'I will endeavor. "'Did not some strangers come at a short time since, brother?' "'Strangers to us, Flora, but not to Charles Holland. "'A relative of his, an uncle, whom he much respects, "'has found him out here, and has now come to see him.' "'And to advise him,' said Flora, as she sunk into a chair and wept bitterly. "'To advise him, of course, to desert, as he would a pestilence, a vampire bride.' "'Hush, hush!' "'For the sake of heaven, never make use of such a phrase, Flora. "'You know not what a pang it brings to my heart to hear you. "'No, forgive me, brother.' "'Say no more of it, Flora. Heed it not. "'It may be possible. "'In fact, it may well be supposed as more than probable "'that the relative of Charles Holland may shrink from sanctioning the alliance. "'But do you rest securely in the possession of the heart "'which I feel convinced is wholly yours, and which, I am sure,' would break ere it surrendered you? A smile of joy came across Flora's pale but beautiful face as she cried. And you, dear brother, you think so much of Charles's faith? As heaven is my judge, I do. Then I will bear up, with what strength God may give me against all things that seek to depress me, I will not be conquered. You are right, Flora. I rejoice to find in you such a disposition— here is some manuscript which Charles thinks will amuse you, and he bade me ask you if you would be introduced to his uncle. Yes, yes, willingly. I will tell him so. I know he wishes it, and I will tell him so. Be patient, dear Flora, and all may yet be well. But, brother, on your sacred word, tell me, do you not think this Sir Francis Varney is the vampire? I know not what to think, and do not press me for a judgment now. He shall be watched. Henry left his sister, and she sat for some moments in silence with the papers before her that Charles had sent her. Yes, she then said, gently. He loves me. Charles loves me. I ought to be very, very happy. He loves me. In those words are concentrated a whole world of joy. Charles loves me. He will not forsake me. Oh, was there ever such dear love, such fond devotion? Never, never. Dear Charles, he loves me. 
He loves me. The very repetition of these words had a charm for Flora, a charm which was sufficient to banish much sorrow. Even the much-dreaded vampire was forgotten, while the light of love was beaming upon her, and she told herself, He is mine, he is mine, he loves me truly. After a time she turned to the manuscript which her brother had brought her, and, with a far greater concentration of mind than she had thought it possible she could bring to it, considering the many painful subjects of contemplation that she might have occupied herself with, she read the pages with very great pleasure and interest. The tale was one which chained her attention both by its incidents and the manner of its recital. It commenced as follows, and was titled, Hugo de Verol, or The Double Plot. In a very mountainous part of Hungary lived a nobleman whose paternal estates covered many a mile of rock and mountain land, as well as some fertile valleys, in which reposed a hardy and contented peasantry. The old Count Hugo de Verol had quitted life early, and had left his only son, the then Count Hugo de Verol, a boy of scarcely ten years, under the guardianship of his mother, an arbitrary and unscrupulous woman. The Count, her husband, had been one of those quiet, even-tempered men, who have no desire to step beyond the sphere in which they are placed. He had no cares, save those included in the management of his estate, the prosperity of his serfs, and the happiness of those around him. His death caused much lamentation throughout his domains. It was so sudden and unexpected, being in the enjoyment of his health and strength until a few hours previous, and then his energies became prostrated by pain and disease. There was a splendid funeral ceremony which, according to the usages of his house, took place by torchlight. So great and rapid were the ravages of disease, that the Count's body quickly became a mass of corruption. All were amazed at the phenomena, and were heartily glad when the body was disposed of in the place prepared for its reception in the vaults of his own castle. The guests who came to witness the funeral, and attend the Count's obsequies, and to condole with the widow on the loss she had sustained, were entertained sumptuously for many days. The widow sustained her part well. She was inconsolable for the loss of her husband, and mourned his death bitterly. Her grief appeared profound, but she, with difficulty, subdued it to within decent bounds, that she might not offend any of her numerous guests. However, they left her with the assurances of their profound regard, and then, when they were gone, when the last guest had departed, and were no longer visible to the eye of the countess, as she gazed from all the battlements, then her behavior changed totally. She descended from the battlements, and then, with an imperious gesture, she gave her orders that all the gates of the castle should be closed, and a watch set. All signs of mourning she ordered to be laid on one side save her own, which she wore, and then she retired to her own apartment, where she remained unseen. Here the countess remained in profound meditation for nearly two days, during which time the attendants believed she was praying for the welfare of the soul of their deceased master, and they feared she would starve herself to death if she remained any longer. Just as they had assembled together for the purpose of either recalling her from her vigils or breaking open the door, they were amazed to see the countess open the room door and stand in the midst of them. "'What do you do here?' she demanded in a stern voice. "'We came, my lady, to see—see see if if you were well. And why? Because we hadn't seen your ladyship these two days, and we thought that your grief was so excessive that we feared some harm might befall you. The countess's brows contracted for a few seconds. 
and she was about to make a hasty reply, but she conquered the desire to do so, and merely said, "'I am not well. I am faint, but, had I been dying, I should not have thanked you for interfering to prevent me. However, you acted for the best, but do so no more. Now, prepare me some food.' The servants, thus dismissed, repaired to their stations, but with such degree of alacrity that they sufficiently showed how much they feared their mistress. The young count, who was only in his sixth year, knew little about the loss he had sustained, but after a day or two's grief there was an end of his sorrow for the time. That night there came to the castle gate a man dressed in a black cloak, attended by a servant. They were both mounted on good horses, and they demanded to be admitted to the presence of the Countess de Hugo de Verreaux. The message was carried to the countess, who started, but said, "'Admit the stranger.' Accordingly, the stranger was admitted, and shown into the apartment where the countess was sitting. At a signal, the servants retired, leaving the countess and the stranger alone. It was some moments ere they spoke, and then the countess said in a low tone, "'You are come?' "'I am come.' "'You cannot now, you see, perform your threat.' My husband, the Count, caught a putrid disease, and he is no more. I cannot, indeed, do what I intended, inform your husband of your amours, but I can do something as good, and which will give you as much annoyance. Indeed. I, more, if it will cause you to be hated, I can spread reports. You can. And these may ruin you. They may. What do you intend to do? Do you intend that I shall be an enemy, or a friend? I can be either, according to my will. What, do you desire to be either? inquired the countess with a careless tone. If you refuse my terms, you can make me an implacable enemy, and if you grant them, you can make me a useful friend and auxiliary, said the stranger. What would you do if you were my enemy? inquired the countess. It is hardly my place, said the stranger, to furnish you with a knowledge of my intentions, but I will say this much, that the bankrupt Count of Morven is your lover. Well? And in the second place, that you were the cause of the death of your husband. How dare you, sir? I dare say so much, and I dare say also that the Count of Morven bought you the drug of me, and that he gave it to you, and that you gave it to the Count, your husband. And what could you do if you were my friend? inquired the countess in the same tone and without emotion. I should abstain from doing all this. I should be able to put any one else out of your way for you when you get rid of this Count of Morven, as you assuredly will, for I know him too well not to be sure of that. Get rid of him. Exactly, in the same manner you got rid of the old Count. Then I accept your terms. It is agreed, then? Yes, quite. "'Well, then, you must order me some rooms in a tower "'where I can pursue my studies in quiet. "'You will be seen and noticed. "'All will be discovered. "'No, indeed, I will take care of that. "'I can so far disguise myself that he will not recognize me, "'and you can give out I am a philosopher or a necromancer, "'or what you will. "'No one will come to me. "'They will be terrified.' "'Very well. "'And the gold?' shall be forthcoming as soon as I can get it. The Count has placed all his gold in safe-keeping, and all I can seize are the rents as they become due. Very well. But let me have them. 
In the meantime, you must provide for me, as I have come here with the full intention of staying here, or in some neighboring town. Indeed! Yes, and my servant must be discharged, as I want none here. The countess called to an attendant and gave the necessary orders, and afterward remained some time with the stranger who had thus so unceremoniously thrust himself upon her, and insisted upon staying under such strange and awful circumstances. The Count of Morvan came a few weeks after, and remained some days with the Countess. They were ceremonious and polite until they had a moment to retire from before people, when the Countess changed her cold disdain to a cordial and familiar address. "'And now, my dear Morvan,' she exclaimed as soon as they were unobserved, "'and now, my dear Morvan, that we are not seen, tell me, what have you been doing with yourself?' "'Why, I have been in some trouble.' I never had gold that would stay by me. You know my hand was always open. The old complaint again. No, but having come to the end of my store, I began to grow serious. Ah, Morvin, said the countess reproachfully. Well, never mind. When my purse is low, my spirits sink, as the mercury does with the cold. You used to say my spirits were mercurial. I think they were. "'Well, what did you do?' "'Oh, nothing.' "'Was that what you were about to tell me?' inquired the Countess. "'Oh, dear, no. You recollect the Italian quack of whom I bought the drug you gave to the Count, and which put an end to his days. He wanted more money. Well, as I had no more to spare, I could spare no more to him, and he turned vicious and threatened. I threatened, too, and he knew I was fully able and willing to perform any promise I might make to him on that score. I endeavored to catch him, as he had already begun to set people off on the suspicious and marvelous concerning me, and if I could have come across him, I would have laid him very low indeed. And you could not find him? No, I could not. Well, then, I will tell you where he is at this present moment. You? Yes, I. I can scarcely credit my senses at what you say, said Count Morvan. My worthy doctor, you are a little better than a candidate for divine honors. But where is he? Will you promise to be guided by me? said the countess. If you make it a condition upon which you grant the information, I must. Well, then, I take that as a promise. You may. Where? Oh, where is he? Remember your promise. Your doctor is, at this moment, in this castle. This castle? Yes, this castle. Surely there must be some mistake. It is too much fortune at once. He came here for the same purpose he went to you. Indeed. Yes, to get more money by extortion and a promise to poison anybody I liked. Damn! It is the offer he made to me, and he named you. He named you to me and said I should be soon tired of you. You have caged him? Oh, dear, no. He has a suite of apartments in the eastern tower where he passes for a philosopher, or a wizard, as people like best. How? I have given him leave there. Indeed. Yes, and what is more amazing is that he is to aid me in poisoning you when I have become tired of you. This is a riddle I cannot unravel. Tell me the solution." "'Well, dear, listen. He came to me and told me of something I already knew, and demanded money and a residence for his convenience, and I have granted him the asylum.' "'You have?' 
I have. I see. I will give him an inch or two of my Andrea Ferrara. No, no. Do you countenance him? For a time. Listen, we want men in the mines. My late husband sent very few men to them in late years, and therefore they are getting short of men there. Ay, ay. The thing will be for you to feign ignorance of the man, and then you will be able to get him seized and placed in the mines, for such men as he are dangerous and carry poisoned weapons. Would he not be better out of the world at once? There would be no escape and no future contingencies. No, no, I will have no more lives taken, and he will be made useful, and, moreover, he will have time to reflect upon the mistake he made in threatening me. He was paid for the job, and he had no future claim. But what about the child? Oh, he may remain for some time longer here with us. It will be dangerous to do so, said the Count. He is now ten years old, and there is no knowing what may be done for him by his relatives. They dare not enter the gates of this castle, Morvan. Well, well. But you know he might have traveled the same road as his father, and all would be settled. No more lives, as I told you, for we can easily secure him in some other way, and we shall be equally as free from him and them. That is enough. There are dungeons, I know, in this castle, and he can be kept there safe enough. He can, but this is not what I propose. We can put him in the mines, and confine him as a lunatic. Excellent! You see, we must make those mines more productive somehow or other. They would be so— but the Count would not hear of it. He said it was so inhuman, they were so destructive of life. Pshaw! What were the mines intended for, if not for use? Exactly! I often said so, but he always put a negative to it. We'll make use of an affirmative, my dear Countess, and see what will be the result in a change of policy. By the way, when will our marriage be celebrated? Not for some months. How so long? I am impatient. You must restrain your impatience. But we must have the boy settled first, and the Count will have been dead a longer time then, and we shall not give so much scandal to the weak-minded fools that were his friends, for it will be dangerous to have so many events happen about the same period. You shall act as you think proper, but the first thing to be done will be to get this cunning doctor quietly out of the way. Yes. I must contrive to have him seized and carried to the mines. Beneath the tower in which he lives is a trap-door and a vault, from which, by means of another trap and vault, is a long subterranean passage that leads to a door that opens into one end of the mines. Near this end live several men whom you must give some reward to, and they will, by concert, seize him and set him to work. And if he will not work? Why, they will scourge him in such a manner that he would be afraid even of a threat of repetition of the same treatment. That will do, but I think the worthy doctor will split himself with rage and malice. He will be like a caged tiger. But he will be denuded of his teeth and claws, replied the countess, smiling. Therefore, he will have leisure to repent of having threatened his employers. Some weeks passed over, and the Count of Morvan contrived to become acquainted with the doctor, they appeared to be utter strangers to each other, though each knew the other, the doctor having disguised himself, he believed the disguise impenetrable, and therefore sat at ease. "'Worthy doctor,' said the Count to him one day, 
you have, no doubt, in your studies, become acquainted with many of the secrets of science. I have, my lord count. I may say there are few that are not known to Father Aldrovani. I have spent many years in research. Indeed. Yes, the midnight lamp has burned till the glorious sun has reached the horizon and brings back the day, and yet I have been found beside my books. Tis well. Men like you should well know the value of the purest and most valuable metals the earth produces. I know of but one. That is gold. Tis what I mean. But tis hard to procure from the bowels of the earth, from the heart of these mountains by which we are surrounded. Yes, that is true. But know you not the owners of this castle and territory possess these mines and work them? I believe they do, but I thought they had discontinued working them some years. Oh, no, that was given out to deceive the government, who claimed so much out of its products. Oh, ah, I see now. And ever since they have been working it privately, and storing bars of gold up in the vaults of this, here, in this castle? Yes, beneath this very tower, it being the least frequented, the strongest and perfectly inaccessible from all sides save the castle, it was placed there for the safest deposit. I see. And there is much gold deposited in the vaults? I believe there is an immense quantity in the vaults. And what is your motive for telling me of this hoard of the precious metal? Why, doctor, I thought that you or I could use a few bars, and that, if we acted in concert, we might be able to take away at various times, and secrete, in some place or other, enough to make us rich men for all our lives. I should like to see this gold before I said anything about it replied the doctor thoughtfully. "'As you please. Do you find a lamp that will not go out by the sudden draughts of air, or have the means of relighting it, and I will accompany you? When? This very night, good doctor, when you shall see such a golden harvest you never yet hoped for, or even believed in.' "'To-night be it, then,' replied the doctor. "'I will have a lamp that will answer our purpose, and some other matters.' "'Do, good doctor.' and the Count left the philosopher's cell. "'The plan takes,' said the Count to the Countess. "'Give me the keys, and the worthy man will be in safety before daylight. "'Is he not suspicious?' "'Not at all.' That night, about an hour before midnight, the Count Morvan stole toward the philosopher's room. He tapped at the door. "'Enter,' said the philosopher. The Count entered, and saw the philosopher seated, and by him a lamp of peculiar construction, and encased in gauze wire, and a cloak. "'Are you ready?' inquired the Count. "'Quite,' he replied. "'Is that your lamp?' "'It is.' "'Follow me, then, and hold the lamp tolerably high, as the way is strange, and the steps steep.' "'Lead on.' You have made up your mind, I dare say, as to what share of the undertaking you will accept of with me? And what if I will not? said the philosopher coolly. It falls to the ground, and I return the keys to their place. I dare say I shall not refuse, if you have not deceived me as to the quality and purity of the metal they have stored up. I am no judge of these metals, doctor. I am no essayist, but I believe you will find what I have to show you will far exceed your expectations on that head. "'Tis well. Proceed. They had now got to the first vault, in which stood the first door, and, with some difficulty, they opened the vault door. "'It has not been opened for some time,' 
said the philosopher. I dare say not. They seldom used to go here, from what I can learn, though it is kept a great secret. And we can keep it so, likewise. True. They now entered the vault, and came to the second door, which opened into a kind of flight of steps, cut out of the solid rock, and then along a passage cut out of the mountain, of some kind of stone, but not so hard as the rock itself. "'You see,' said the Count, "'what care has been taken to isolate the place and detach it from the castle, so that it should not be dependent upon the possessor of the castle? This is the last door but one. And now, prepare yourself for a surprise, doctor. This will be an extraordinary one.' So saying, the Count opened the door and stepped on one side, when the doctor approached the place, and was immediately thrust forward by the Count, and he rolled down some steps into the mine, and was immediately seized by some of the miners, who had been stationed there for that purpose, and carried to a distant part of the mine, there to work for the remainder of his life. The Count, seeing all secure, refastened the doors and returned to the castle. A few weeks after this, the body of a youth, mangled and disfigured, was brought to the castle, which the Countess said was her son's body. The Count had immediately secured the real heir, and thrust him into the mines, there to pass a life of labor and hopeless misery. There was a high feast held, the castle gates were thrown open, and everybody who came were entertained without question. This was on the occasion of the Count's and Countess's marriage. It seemed many months after the death of her son, whom she affected to mourn for a long time. However, the marriage took place, and in all magnificence and splendor, the Countess again appeared arrayed in splendor and beauty, she was proud and haughty, and the Count was imperious. In the meantime, the young Count de Hugo de Verol was confined in the mines, and the doctor with him. By a strange coincidence, the doctor and the young Count became companions, and the former, meditating projects of revenge, educated the young Count as well as he was able for several years in the mines, and cherished in the young man a spirit of revenge. They finally escaped together, and proceeded to Leyden, where the doctor had friends, and where he placed his pupil at the university, and thus made him a most efficient means of revenge, because the education of the Count gave him a means of appreciating the splendor and rank he had been deprived of. He, therefore, determined to remain at Leyden until he was of age, and then apply to his father's friends, and then to his sovereign, to dispossess and punish them both for their double crimes. The Count and Countess lived on in a state of regal splendor. The immense revenue of his territory and the treasure of the late Count had amassed, as well as the revenue that the mines brought in, would have supported a much larger expenditure than even their tastes disposed them to enjoy. They had heard nothing of the escape of the doctor and the young Count. Indeed, those who knew of it held their peace and said nothing about it, for they feared the consequences of their negligence. The first intimation they received was at the hands of a state messenger, summoning them to deliver up the castle revenues and treasure of the late Count. This was astonishing to them, and they refused to do so, but were soon after seized upon by a regiment of curasseurs sent to take them, and they were accused of the crime of murder at the instance of the doctor. They were arraigned and found guilty, and, as they were of the patrician order, their execution was delayed, and they were committed to exile. This was done out of favor to the young Count, who did not wish to have his family name tainted by a public execution, or their being confined like convicts. 
the Count and Countess quitted Hungary, and settled in Italy, where they lived upon the remains of the Count of Morvan's property, shorn of all their splendor, but enough to keep them from being compelled to do any menial office. The young Count took possession of his patrimony and his treasure at last, such as was left by his mother and her paramour. The doctor continued to hide his crimes from the young Count, and the perpetrators denying all knowledge of it, he escaped, but he returned to his native place laden with a reward for his services from the young Count. Flora rose from her perusal of the manuscript, which here ended, and even as she did so, she heard a footstep approaching her chamber door. End of chapter 19